Welcome to CA Conversations. I'm Dr. Sarah M. Dreller, and I produce this week's episode on contingent faculty unions. So they were interviewing us, and it was interesting to hear the message of the university change throughout the day. And from what I understand, it started out with, we don't know why they're striking. We don't understand why they, they have it good here. It's fine. And by the end of the day, the message became, I guess this is a new normal. So it was extremely effective just one day. And the best part was... Is- That's Dr. Sarita here. She's an instructor of art history and the fine and performing arts department at Loyola University, Chicago. And there she was talking about her union's one day strike last spring. You'll hear her discuss the whys and hows of union organizing with Jason Grunebaum, lecturer in Hindi in the Department of South Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. Jason is similarly passionate and shares some really thoughtful insights about the union formation process going on right now at his institution. Along the way, they talk dancing in the streets and chasing away nightmares, proving union work isn't always about ugly disagreements and tedious legalese. This episode is part of a limited-run series about precarious academic labor that I've produced for CA Conversations. You can find these episodes at CA's website and on iTunes. I've also created a companion website called Contingent Talk with extended information about the series. That's at contingenttalk.hcommons.org. I'll be back briefly at the end. For now, on behalf of Sarita, Jason, the College Art Association, and myself, thank you for listening. Enjoy. Hi, this is Sarita speaking, and um, I'm thrilled to be able to talk about this topic of um, contingent teaching and contingent faculty in higher education and union organizing. Um, I had adjunct taught, which means part-time, as many of you know, for 15 years. And then one year after I finished my doctorate, um, I was able to land a one-year contract at Loyola University Chicago. I had been adjuncting there previously. Um, The one-year contract um, was, as we all know, not the best situation. They're temporary contracts, but uh, my department head had made sure to make make my contract renew um, over the last three years so that I would still have a full-time job. This this aspect of uh, higher education and teaching is becoming the norm, unfortunately, where a lot of uh, universities are doing away with tenure track positions and they're trying to get in cheaper, expendable labor. So they'll try with part timers uh, first, but they also realize they have to have a certain percentage of full timers to kind of keep their street credit, for lack of a better term. Um, so they've started making these one year, three year, five year contracts. Now, at Loyola, the one-year contract has a temporary, that's officially its status. The three-year is um, an ongoing contract, it just rolls over, and same with the five-year. Now, I had been in a union before when I was a graduate student at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I was involved, um, I think, for five years. Um, I was a grievance chair, I was a steward for my department, I was part of the um, steering committee, so I was very heavily involved um, in doing that, and I saw the benefits immediately. 
we got paid better than some graduate assistants. Um, well, many in the Chicago area. We also um, had a lot more of our fees covered by the tuition quote unquote waiver. And we also just seemed to build a solidarity among us um, with, within the different departments. When you're in a doctoral or master's program, it's really simple to just put your head in the sand and see the people around your department and that's it. But having colleagues across disciplines makes for a stronger front, um, whether you are actually organizing a union or not. So when Loyola was organized, and I was not there um, at the beginning processes, when Loyola was organized a union, I was thrilled. I knew that this was going to be a game changer for both me and my one-year contract and my part-time colleagues that have been um, adjuncting. Adjuncting was rough. It doesn't pay much, but I was one of the fortunate people because of my specialty in um, modern and contemporary South Asia that I could um, actually just approach just about any school where I lived and say, hey, I can teach this non-Western course. Can I do it? And they would usually keep me on with two courses a semester, every semester. So I had consistent work. But there are other people I've known that, that are part-timers that have not had that kind of consistency. Like I said, this is the wave of the future in the university. So I think that organizing um, faculty into unions is absolutely paramount. Jason? Thanks, Sarita. Um, this is Jason, and um, thanks very much for, I think you really gave a good overview of uh, the state of higher ed right now vis-a-vis -vis relying on contingent labor. Um, so I think I'll just jump in and talk a little bit about my background. Um, I started teaching at the University of Chicago as a full-timer in 2004, and my position, you know, in the continuum or spectrum of contingency uh, was on the higher end of security and, and benefits. Um, I started with a three-year contract, um, and then I was promoted at a time when promotion was still a possibility, um, and then received a five-year contract. But during the time, during the, let's say, 10 years or so between the time I started teaching and uh, the time when we started uh, organizing to form our faculty union, um, the conditions for contingent faculty, both full-timers and part-timers, either were flat or were um, eroded. Um, for example, I mean, the part-timers teaching on a quarter system had to reapply for their own jobs every single quarter, again and again, year after year. Uh, so there was no job security for them whatsoever, no access to benefits. For full-time lecturers, um, things like um, the possibility of promotion that was sort of quietly taken away in the middle of the night about 10 years ago, um, longer contracts um, were frowned upon. And basically what sort of lit the fire under under me to, to, to start uh, joining the organizing effort was seeing how the administration, which was like everywhere else, growing increasingly more corporate, um, the bean counters were kind of taking over and the bean counters could squeeze uh, the people at the bottom the easiest. So um, very senior colleagues of mine who, I mean, have dedicated their entire careers to very specialized languages like Urdu, Marathi, giving everything to their students. Um, suddenly, the terms of their contracts were changed without any prior warning. 
um, my own situation, they, uh, without any um, notification that the renewal process might be any different, cut me down from a five-year to a three-year contract. And, you know, that's not such a bad thing if you, I mean, that's not such a, you know, horrible position to be in if you look at the um, kind of spectrum of the, the real contingency where, you know, so many people are just sort of hanging by their fingernails. But what was really alarming was just the absolute cavalier way that they went about doing it. You know, it's not as much that it uh, the 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 um, the result wasn't you know something that nobody could live with, but it was just how it was it was done with absolutely no respect. And I think the word respect comes up again and again, um, and did come up again and again in our eventual bargaining with the administration. So I just saw my my colleagues basically humiliated, um, not to mention the you know part timers who were humiliated on a regular basis. Um, you know some of the top people in their field having to just continually reapply for their own jobs. So that really pushed me um, into organizing full time. When we began to organize, uh, we won our faculty union by uh, almost. Uh, five to one margin um, in 2016. And then I was very involved in bargaining our first contract. And uh, I know, I think Sarita and I will probably talk a little bit more um, about the gains, um, the tangible material gains we were able to secure with our first contracts. And then also, I just became more involved in, um, I would say, labor, uh, you know, seeing the connections between the Fight for 15. Um, being able to uh, work uh, with the Fight for 15 organizing committee. And then now we finally won our first contract in um, this past March and ratified it. And now we're beginning to, you know, see uh, what it's like on the other side. And maybe um, I'll throw it back over to you, Sarita. And if you want to talk about maybe uh, what you guys want over there, um, maybe about I'm still jealous you guys got to go on strike and we didn't go on strike. Um, but maybe you can talk about that a little bit um, and then we can take it from there. That was the first time actually when we went on strike. It was um, April 4th of 2018. That was the first time I've actually been on strike, even though I've been in a, another union for much longer. There were a lot of material gains um, other than, as Jason pointed out, um, the university actually showing appreciation for the hard work we put in and the time we give to our students. Um, it's not as if we um, left the classroom and that was it. We weren't with our students anymore. Um, what we're looking at instead is that we would be putting hours in at home as well and in email answering and meeting with students and stuff like that. So we wanted the university to recognize that work. And for us, um, fortunately or unfortunately, According to Jason, fortunately, um, we had to go on strike um, in order for the university to take us seriously. They were very much trying to stall the whole process. It took a lot longer. It took um, close to two years to bargain our first contract. Um, and that's a long time for a first contract. So what we had decided with the strike was we just deliberately decided to make it a one-day strike. We wanted to give the university a sense of what was going to happen if we decided to hold a longer strike. So this was a strategic, um, a strategic move on our part. So what we did was we chose April 4th um, because that was the day that 
Martin Luther King, I think was he was assassinated that day. And we chose that day to kind of commemorate him, as well as kind of saying that the civil rights um, movements, um, including labor rights, is not over and it needs to be on um, the, the baton needs to be picked up. So we basically organized to be on the picket line from about 7.30 a.m. to about 4.30 p.m. And I was there the entire time. And we had a really great location that we did it because the whole point of doing a strike is to disrupt the daily business of your employer. Um, Loyola University only really has one entrance into the campus that allows you to park in the main garage and get into the main part of campus. So what we basically did was we picketed across that opening, that um, driveway, all day long. We'd, only, we'd stop when the traffic lights were green because we didn't want to get hurt, but that's what we did all day. And it was extremely effective. Very, a lot of people were frustrated by it, so it was effective. And we had a lot of news coverage as well. So Sun-Times was there, NPR was there, I think Chicago, the Tribune was there. There was a few other places I can't remember off the top of my head. So they were interviewing us and it was interesting to hear the message of the university change throughout the day. And from what I understand, it started out with, we don't know why they're striking. We don't understand why they, they have it good here, it's fine. And by the end of the day, the message became, I guess this is a new normal. So it was extremely effective just one day. And the best part was a lot of our students joined us. Um, Literally, the students added to the disruption by literally having a dance party in the street right in front of that driveway um, when the light was red. So again, that would be very disruptive to traffic, not only coming into university, but going past the university as well. A number of us participated. It was kind of difficult to initially get people on board, but as people who were kind of wary about having a strike saw the disrespect the university was doling out to us they said no 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 this is important i have to stand up for this so there were many people on that picket line who i was i was surprised they joined because they seemed so adamant against the idea of striking it was effective we won a lot of um as jason put it material gains um so one of the things they did that's very important to me is they decided that anyone who's been on a one-year contract for three years needs to be converted to a three-year contract. So I, my job is going to be posted shortly, actually next week, and I have to reapply for it. The chances are I'm probably gonna get it. I've been there for eight years and my colleagues know my teaching cell, they see my interaction with students, and this is a teaching contract. So I'll probably get it, but you know, I'm still gonna treat it like a quote unquote real job interview. But that was a, a major win for me. But the other thing was the adjunct pay. It literally had not gone up from what I understand for 10 years. So the adjuncts with a terminal degree were making 4,500 before the contract. And then after the contract, they were making 6,200 per class. We felt that was a nice boost considering how long it had been since there had been no raise. We also created a category of, um, as we call them jokingly on our end, super adjuncts. Um, people who've been there for a long time have been teaching the same amount of classes for three or more years. And we offered them the opportunity to apply for something called instru adjunct instructor, which gave them a two-year contract instead of a semester by semester, and also boosted their pay an extra $600. That was a per class, and that was a big deal for many of them, because many of our part-timers had been there for well over three years. So that was a huge win as well. We tried to get 
benefits for our part-timers, but we realized that that probably wasn't going to happen in the first contract. Um, and we, the other major thing we won, which was again um, astounding, I was able to take advantage of it already, is we had the university make a professional development fund just for the union members. So the contingent faculty in the College of Arts and Sciences now had $30,000 from which we could dip into to go to conferences or to, um, you know, represent the school at other places, um, things like that. So this was a ginormous improvement. It was it was incredible. It was exhilarating um, to have this done and finally settled. Now, as I've been talking to Jason about this, um, the university fought really hard against the organizing and the contract, but they were more than happy to implement it. Once the contract fight was over, the administration at, the, um, at Loyola University Chicago were like, OK, let's get this in place. So they've been very, very eager to get this going. And there have been hiccups. This is a first time for them, for us. But for the most part, I'd say it's running fairly smoothly. Jason, do you want to talk a little bit about what's going on your end at U of Chicago? Sure, thanks. Um, I just want to pick up on a couple of things that you mentioned. Um, the, the love that you felt from all of your students and uh, the kind of way that coming together for the strike really sort of strengthened solidarity um, in uh, and among colleagues. Um, I mean, for me, one of the best parts about this whole process, you know, I mean, I could talk about all of the gains and the security and I'll, I'll talk about what we won. But personally, I think one of the best things about um, the entire process of organizing um, and coming together and really showing our strength as one faculty has just been getting to know all of these other colleagues from across campus that I never would have gotten to know otherwise. Um, finally being able to talk to one another um, very openly and candidly um, about all of the same kinds of things that we're experiencing, um, both in terms of the material conditions of our employment to everything else um, for so long the contingent faculty, which teaches about 40% of the classes at the University of Chicago. Um, we were really sort of hiding in the shadows, keeping our heads down, hoping, you know, nobody was going to come and uh, kind of whack us um, and things like that, um, to now where we really have a forum and, and a structure and uh, the fear is removed to talk about things like the fact that before our contract, colleagues of mine who were teaching for 10, 15 um, or more years were still making in the 40s and, and often in the low 40s, uh, which just is not gonna fly in Chicago and is unacceptable for a university that has an endowment of over uh, almost $8 billion. So we were able to uh, win increases. Um, the average increase for the full-time lecturers in the first year of our contract was about 15%, one five. 60% um, of the full-time lecturers received a 10% increase or greater this first year of the contract. Like uh, with you guys at Loyola, uh, we were able to increase the per course rate, which had also been completely flat for a decade or so. Uh, we increased that by about 40% over the three years of the contract. And then we were able to create for long-term um, part-timers, a salaried part-time benefits eligible position, which is uh, tied to the full-time rate. It's, a, um, it's, it's about 
uh, 49.7% roundabout plus benefits. And then just things like we finally won a pathway to promotion, which we didn't have before. Um, we have a presumption of reappointment. I mean, if we keep doing a good job, um, a far more transparent performance review, um, which, you know, in the old days, we would be lucky to hear the results of our reappointment one or two days before our old contract was to expire, or even sometimes after our old contract expires. So now we'll know in March, um, instead of the end of June, we, one of the, one of the big things we, we won that we're very proud of, and, and I think it's the first in a faculty contract in the country is, um, the university sponsoring and paying for, uh, green cards for the full-time lecturers. One of my colleagues, um, after, you know, her H1B ran out, she was simply kicked to the curb and she had to re return home to India and cash in half of her retirement savings just to survive. And then she had to reapply for her own job. So now the university will will um, sponsor and, 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 and pay for uh, green cards for full-time contingent faculty. Um, we also got the same parental leave um, as, as, as tenure stream faculty um, and also professional development funds. So that, I mean, it was just like a huge sense of relief and accomplishment um, to finally, you know, hammer these things out. It took a couple of years on our end as well but, uh, you know, once we set a deadline, once we showed the university that there would be consequences for them uh, if they didn't come to, a, come to an agreement, and then just seeing the ways in which our undergrads stepped up to support us, uh, tenure stream faculty also uh, stepped up and did a lot to sign a petition and, and write a letter. And I think what really uh, pissed them off, uh, and I say that in a good way, was when over a thousand of our former students wrote to the president and provost basically saying this is not on you have to treat these people with respect and if you don't uh we're just not going to donate any money to the university so this is what it takes either a strike a strike vote um some sort of either potential public embarrassment or um you know hitting them in the uh hitting them in the in the pocketbook as well um but in the end it was a tremendous sense of achievement and relief i guess i'd be curious um you know they say that the second you start bargaining you start thinking about you start bargaining your second contract the day after the first contract is ratified i'd be curious uh, to hear from from you sarita about some of the things that you and your colleagues are talking about uh things that you want to achieve in your next contract or you know whatever else of course, talk about our next contract. Um, our current contract is um, going through uh, June 2021. Um, no, I'm sorry, July 2021. That's when the fiscal year ends, or maybe it's the end of June. One of the wherever the fiscal year ends for the university, and we're already talking about what we need and things we missed. And one of the most important things we absolutely want to do is we need to ensure that um, we have one section that's part of our union that's kind of part of the College of Arts and Life, but kind of not. And they're called the um, ELLP, the English Language Learning Program. And they really were just treated like garbage by the university. They were teaching year round. They didn't have a choice if they got to teach in the summer or not. And on top of that, they were getting paid less than the full timers that were getting nine month contracts. So they really got screwed. And then during the bargaining process, we started to learn that 
um, it's possible they were trying to get rid of that program. So one of the, our major goals for next contract is to make sure that the ELLP gets a lot of more job security as well as getting the money that they deserve for the hard work they do. So we end up seeing that um, you know, there were a lot of gains and we are already talking on our second contract. Um, in my in my experience, you usually start bargaining the new contract or start getting ready to bargain it about a year and a half into the current contract. So that gives you about half the time. And then you actually ask your employer to come to the bargaining table before the contract ends. And, you know, if it ends, you know, and you're still bargaining, that's it is what it is. Um, but I want to follow up on something Jason said, and that was um, being able to meet other colleagues in other departments. It has been a it's just a it's just a the night and day for me because now when I walk around campus, I see my colleagues I met because we're all bargaining together and we're all engaging together, and it's like oh I feel more a part of this campus than I ever did. So that's a um, um ginormous aspect. Um, I do want to add something um, of interest, and Jason, I don't know if you can speak to this, but so in fine arts, um, you can either have your PhD in art history as your terminal degree, or you can have your MFA as a master of fine arts if you're a studio artist. The studio artist MFA usually takes about two years. A PhD in art history can take anywhere from five to eight to nine years, depending on what your situation is. Now, because the MFA is such a short terminal degree, there are many people who get it. And one of the things that I concerns me, um, again, being in a fine arts department, is that there are people out there desperately clamoring for these jobs. And one of the things, again, as Jason said, was the transparency, not only in the hiring process, but the promotion process. And I think this is a huge gain for those that have these MFA terminal degrees, because there's a lot more of them than there are of people with PhDs in art history. Now, there are a number of people with PhDs in art history that are also desperate for jobs. And quite frankly, people graduating from programs here and out are probably going to be encountering those um, lectureship positions. And I've seen a number of them posted this year on the CAA jobs website. Um, so this is going to become the new normal. So we have to figure out a way as art historians, artists, and just contingent faculty in general um, to be able to protect our job and to make sure that we can settle down at some point. My mentor, she actually, we were having a deep conversation about this and me having to move again at my age, and I'm in my early 40s, and her response was, well, when do you get to live your life? And she said, look, if they're giving you benefits, if you're getting um, health insurance, you're getting a decent salary, you like where you are, why should you have to try to fight and fight for the rest of your life to try to find that tenure track job. And it was like a light bulb went off to me when she said that. So, you know, so this is this is all extremely important for all of us, especially in the humanities, though I have seen sciences going this way as well. Uh, Jason, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, thanks, Sarita. I'm really glad that you brought that up. I'd like to just really briefly add a, a couple of things. I, I completely agree. I think that as you know, the universities fighting unions is so wrong on so many levels, you know, particularly in the world that we're living in uh, right now. Um, but actually, strong union positions can save, in a way, the academy. I mean, it's not going to be the only thing that's going to save the academy, but particularly, like you mentioned, uh, positions in the arts, positions in the humanities, the 
um, the, the places that quote unquote don't make money, you know, the way that the hard sciences do, uh, the non-STEM uh, professions. Um, in order to make, you know, grad students, people who are just kind of entering this pipe on, pipeline slash vortex slash black hole, feel like they might be able to actually have a good steady career, uh, the only thing that's going to get protections are the union jobs. That's it. Um, everything's getting more corporate. The 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 labor board is, um, you know, for the foreseeable future going to be very hostile. So universities actually need to not only voluntarily recognize uh, unions, but actively um, actively encourage them in a way if they want to save the profession, if they want to save the academy, um, unless they just want to, you know, sort of turn it into a kind of um, uh, science, hard science, mathematics kind of feeder for, you know, whatever the defense industry and things like that. Um, I could say a lot of things about the University of Chicago um, and the way it's branding itself, um, but that that's another discussion for another time. The last thing I, I just want to say is uh, I'd like to draw people's attention to a really great article that came out a few days ago in The Guardian by Alyssa Court. Um, basically the, um, it says professors are selling their plasma to pay bills. Let's hold colleges feet to the fire. And then if you like your coffee, fair trade, why not your children's school, fair labor? So, um, these U S news and world report rankings, of course, universities would hate this. Um, but you know, why not, um, use the power that we have in our unions to push for the university to submit itself to the same kind of scrutiny that it does for various academic metrics uh, for how well they pay, uh, you know, not only their academic workers, but also their workers across campus. I think that would be a great idea. I think that would be a great thing for universities to start competing um, among themselves with instead of, you know, big shiny buildings, because I think a lot of people do care. and. Um, uh, increasingly do want to know that all the money that they're paying for their uh, students' education um, is not just going to these buildings, that it's actually going to the people who are educating them and all of the other support uh, workers around campus. So um, take a look at that um, piece um, if you're interested in it. I think it's a really timely and important idea. I guess um, I'll just finish up by saying this is the first year that I haven't had a teaching anxiety dream before the first day of classes. Usually I know that classes are about a week away when I have some completely bizarre dream about, oh, I don't know, show up, I'm not prepared, or there's this huge wall between me and my students and I can't see them. But this is the first year, and this is the first year of our contract that I didn't have these kind of anxiety dreams. And I think that you feel this much um, more calm and strong feeling around campus uh, this year. So that's all for me, uh, Sarita. Uh, well said, Jason. It's a great way to end this podcast um, because it's a very hopeful note, even though we we're talking about a lot of negative things. So um, thanks for partnering with me on this, Jason. Um, we, um, for the listeners information, um, me and Jason are part of the same union. We're part of SEIU Local 73, Service Employee International Union. Um, and even though we're at different universities, we're still under the same union. But our but our unions have our own autonomy over a Congress. We have specific quirks that we need to work out for each other, our, our, our own universities. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Sarita. This is Sarah again. 
If you liked this episode, be sure to check out the College Art Association's website or iTunes for more great conversations. And for extended information about my series on precarious academic labor, remember to visit the companion website called Contingent Talk. It's at contingenttalk.hcommons.org. Cheers.